everybody, it's time to roll for intent with the Creator's Corner, where we talk about some product or book or splat book or whatever related to second edition. Uh, we talk about not only what's in the book, but how you can use it in your game, how you can integrate it uh, as a DM, or even how you can integrate that sort of information as a content creator yourself. Uh, with me tonight, I've got Christian uh, of Beast Foundry and of Roll for Intent as our rules lawyer. And by the time this goes live, you'll find out that he is as Mordrin, our newest PC. How you doing, Christian? Not too bad. How are you doing today, Trevor? You know what? It, it's been a day. It has been a day. It's not been a bad day, but it's been a day. Oh. Taking kids to the Children's Museum is just, it's a day, y'all. Is that a museum full of stuffed children? Might as well be. Because <laughs> I like, I know when you go to the dinosaur museum, that's full of dinosaurs. That's an absolutely good point, And you always make the most astute observations. Why don't they have a museum full of stuffed children? Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> That's not why we're here, no matter how interesting it may be. <laughs> that went dark real quick. <laughs> Where are Exactly, right? <laughs> we are here primarily to talk about another chapter of the Lost Omens Travel Guide releasing on August 31st. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the trade chapter. Another one of those that you may be wondering, why do you want to talk about the trade chapter? There's not a lot of mechanics in there. Oh no, there are. You might not care about them, but you know what? There are people that do, and we are those people. Because anything that increases the verisimilitude of a world is good when you are trying to create a world that people are interested in being a part of and interested in hearing you tell stories in. So if you're a DM, even if you're not living in Galarian full-time, you can synthesize portions of this, this chapter into your game and add some reality to it, right? Why, why is this place way off in the middle of the desert? How can I so easily get lumber here? Well, maybe you can't. Maybe you can only get it sometimes. Maybe you can only get certain types. And some of the things that they talk about this in this chapter are going to help you increase that level of verisimilitude in a game in Galarian, most definitely because the trade routes are detailed. but also be able to create that sort of lore within your own homebrew world. And that is what's so exciting about these uh, settings books is while they are Galarian specific, the content in them does not have to be tied explicitly to Galarian as an idea. Yeah. As someone who, you know, has my own world and not very well versed in Galarian beyond, you know, what I've heard from other podcasts and such, I am pleasantly surprised with every chapter in this book because every time i read a new chapter i it immediately makes me think of you know how is that integrated into my world and there are so many tables in here that they just they're small but they're full of all kinds of wonderful little gaming goodies to just really spark your imagination and to get you thinking and just help some things that might seem more mundane in your adventures come alive. You know, they, this, this section we're about to get to the trade section, you know, you, you feel like, Oh, well, that's, that's something that we never really get into in my game, but just, you know, having an outline trade route while your characters are adventuring and like, Oh, look, they're really close to here. Maybe they've encountered a wayward caravan or a crashed ship that is on this very popular trade route. So I think it's, it's full of all kinds of great stuff. 
And while we're on the topic of great stuff, we have with us today someone who probably would love to talk about the trade section. Probably someone that knows more about the trade section than anyone else, honestly. But with us, we have Dustin Knight, a Paizo freelancer, and he's the host of Infinite Reviews, where he does something very similar to what we're doing here, though I think mostly on a third-party bent. Is that right? Correct. I highlight different Pathfinder and Starfinder Infinite products every week on Friday. So very cool. How can we find that show? Oh, you could find it at uh, on the official Paizo Twitch stream or on my own stream at twitch.tv slash Warlock. You could also find our Discord at infinite.net. Excellent. Very, very cool. Uh, now that we got your plug out of the way, which we'll do it again <laughs> later, because you know what? Content creators, we all got to help each other, right? Yes, thank you. Can't have too many plugs. I remember talking to you when, when I first found out that we were going to get access to this book to do some reviews about what drew you to doing the chapter on trade. And you gave me some really interesting information alongside the type of research that you had to do to make this happen. You want to share a little bit as to what drew you so much to this chapter and why you went so deep on the research in this? It has to be something that was kind of near and dear to you. Oh, I mean, I, I love trade uh, in in fantasy settings, in uh, uh, pre-industrial times, uh, researching it and incorporating it into my own campaigns. I love using what people would consider downtime as a cornerstone for campaigns and setting campaigns like You're All Merchants or You're All Firefighters or what have you as the uh, way to explain how the PCs get their wealth so that you don't always devolve into uh, murder hobos. And I, I don't like playing with a party of murder hobos. So if anybody right. listens to our show, they know that about me. I don't deal well with the murder hobo thing. Uh, so anything that increases a PC's connection to the world and makes the PC feel more real, the less likely they're just going to be some, you know, dude in shining armor with a spear that looks like a snake that kills shopkeeps because they don't have enough gold. <laughs> right, right. I also love trade goods for treasure. It's not always, it's always a lot more interesting when you find a, uh, a deck of harrow cards or a, a, even a, a, a bottle of rare wine than, uh, okay, he had some more gold on him. We'll put that in the ledger. Right. It's also really cool to be able to do something like that if you're doing maybe an evil campaign or an evil character and you're raiding or something like that. Adding those trade rules and trade routes and that underpinning to the world makes something like that real. Uh, I remember playing through Skull and Shackles, uh, and the second book of that is very, very heavy on you are raiding ships and taking their trade goods, but they do not get nearly as in-depth as to what those sort of trade goods are. It's just like, oh, you have a bulk of trade goods that's worth this amount of reputation. Neat. Okay, off to the next one. I also really like realistic prices for my trade goods and for my goods. And I got to tell you, as I was doing this, there were so many great moments where I'm just like, wow, that matches what the player's handbook chose for that almost to the point. Like you could assume there's some taxes or something that made it a little bit off, but uh, pretty good match. Uh, there weren't a lot of problems like in uh, earlier editions. We had problems of like two 10 foot pulls versus a ladder and the prices were off in a very amusing way. That made uh, infinite gold. That's something me and Christian noticed uh, when we were talking about the crime and, and law section. Having those real world 
uh, numbers for things that match what the real world economy is and making that economy consistent throughout the world is such a big part of what these books are doing. And honestly, it's this big, often overlooked part of 2E and the design as a whole. There are a lot of interesting things that they did early on in the design that allowed the versimilitude that uh, settings books like this provide and expand upon in a consistent fashion. Most of all, there's no retconning. There's no hand-waving. It allows creators like you to work within that framework in a meaningful way and in a realistic way, as far as realistic can go in this pseudo-Renaissance fantasy world that we're all playing in. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I really absolutely love the the section here with the actual trade goods where you cover you know, silver ingots, gold ingots. There's fish and wine and ale and tin and copper and dyes and just you know, bricks and lumber and stone. I mean, there, it just goes on and on. And it was really fun to read. And I also am very fond of, you know, telling my players, you know, when you're you know, you've cleared out this dungeon and there are you know, living cultists or what have you in there that it's not all gold. Like, you know, you find textiles, you find these, you know, items of you find food goods and all kinds of things that, you know, it's worth this much, but this is what it's all composed of. Plus, it's also fun to make them kind of struggle with, okay, here's a here's a decent sum of money, but how are you getting it out of here? Because you may have found a, you know, a 200 gold piece armoire, but it's not the easiest thing to get out of the dungeon. Say, oh, the armoire of invulnerability. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just cut a couple of armholes in it and it's armor now, right? There you go. Yeah, the, those artifacts of actually living are so cool and so overlooked in loot. Like, you know, you've got this bandit cave. How are they going to stay in line? They're not just behind this charismatic leader. They're probably getting hammered every night. So where's all the kegs of wine? Let's sell some right. wine, right? They've got wine. They've got bedding. What have, what have they been raiding? What have they been keeping? They're fencing it to somebody, but they got to hold it somewhere first. Okay, well, now you have it. Do you return the goods? Do you send it? Do you find the fence? You know, are you going to try to sell these illicitly and take it at a lower price? There's so much, you know, it sounds really boring if you talk about it, but weaving it into a story adds actual drama and tension and stakes, not just, oh yeah, amulet of protection for cool, <laughs> neat. Well, this section definitely had the most time per word spent uh, in my career in that uh, if you just look at the prices and how many words are involved in just the prices, I mean, I, I spent a good... I believe it was six or seven days, about six to seven hours a day researching uh, different prices and figuring out the basis for this, which, you know, Paizo didn't necessarily ask me to do. I, I didn't have to go that extra distance, but I, I wanted to. And uh, it's the kind of thing I like doing in my spare time anyway. So, hey, I might as well apply it. In particular, the book, The English Wool Market, uh, 1230 to 1327 was a really big help. And uh, getting that established price for wool really helped uh, kind of deduce the prices of everything else. Uh, like, I'd start by learning how big a sack of wool was before I could figure out how big, which is like 364 pounds. Um, <laughs> and, and then figure out, like, that's enough wool for, you know, 72, 80 square feet, which would take 134 days to make, which would be worth about 670 copper worth of labor using the standard level one labor rules. 
Uh, if you have a 15% shortage of material, that's still enough to produce 200 outfits. Oh, hey, look, there's rule, there's prices for outfits in the core rule book. Do these match up with this? Would they still make a reasonable profit if they did this? And then, you know, the tailor has to buy 50%, and then the merchant will buy it for 50%, the textile will buy it for 50%. Will this all add up with the prices that we have and the prices that we need? And once I figured out that kind of wool standard, I was able to then look up the prices for riding horses and then uh, uh, wheat, uh, everything else that we have in here, essentially, and uh, make sure that everything made sense so that if somebody wanted to extrapolate this into a fantasy economy, they could. And almost everything would make sense. People may be poo-pooing wool as a major, major trade item, but man, I've been, <laughs> I've been through the Cotswolds. I've seen those wool towns. I've seen the money that that wool bought in that time period. You know, wool is, can be an absolute cornerstone of an economy when there's not synthetic fibers. So back to weird kind of esoteric nerd stuff. But this is a big deal. I mean, I want to like kind of dovetail this into you have trade routes, like physical trade routes. There's a half dozen or so named trade routes. You name the regions they go through. They're on the map. Uh, I learned a little bit about the layout of Avistan by going through this. I like literally did not realize that you go over the top of the crown of the world and you hit Tianzab because, you know, that makes sense. But I never really looked at it that way. But it allows you to see how, you know, maybe you're doing quest for the Frozen Flame and you're up in the, you know, Mammoth Lords, you know, land of the Mammoth Lords, right? It doesn't make sense that you can get access to certain things outside of certain times of the year or outside of certain trade routes. It can add to a GM's toolkit for creating additional realism in the world, if that's what your party's for. Like, if your party just wants to go out there and smash monsters, yeah, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense for you. However, there is an increasing number of GMs that are in it to tell a story and to live in a story with their players. And doing things like that allows you to create realism. Like, okay, it's winter. There's not going to be a caravan for another three months. So you're not going to be able to get item XYZ right right now. Or uh, we can't get wood to build anything down here in Katapesh because it's lots of desert, right? So we have to wait for a caravan to bring in lumber, which there's a price for lumber here, folks. Uh, one copper for, per 40 board feet. That's a, that's a pretty good price. So yeah. you can add so much to the world just looking at trade routes and just looking at trade and guys don't sleep on this chapter it can add so much flavor and color to your world right and hey i love slaying monsters too but it gets tiring when it's every monster is and if you look in the den the monster killed a bunch of other old adventurers and you could take their stuff but you know you need gold is an expected part of leveling up it's it's an expected part of your character's power and while bounties are a thing if you're traveling and want to kill a monster you might as well throw in there like, hey, little tip you pick up from the bar. If you want to bring this wool over from, you know, Almas to Irisan, uh, they're willing to sell, buy it for more there and you'll get yourself some extra gold. And just leave it at that. You don't need to describe how the carriages are going over certain parts if you don't want to. If you just want to get from point A to point B and give your characters some gold while they're fighting, defending themselves from a monster, you got an excuse. Yeah, I feel that uh, this chapter is going to cause a lot of DMs headache as players are starting to ask, how much bulk do wagons carry? <laughs> <laughs> how many horses do I need to carry a fully loaded wagon? Why I have you here, there's one thing. You probably would be one of the best people to answer this question because as it comes up, as I t have taught many, many people to play 
D&D and Pathfinder over the many years. What would you best equate the value of a single gold piece in today's terms? Oh, man. I want to make sure you're talking about a single gold piece. Are you talking about the single standard piece for an economy? Because D&D, they got gold, we got silver, 1E, we got gold. No, I'm talking like a single gold piece because, you know, when an adventurer, you know, finds 10 gold pieces or they see something that costs three gold pieces, like at my table, I I kind of very loosely went through and looked at everything and I kind of put a number that one gold piece has pretty close to $100 value when you look at it based on its purchasing power. So it's like, you know, you found 10 gold pieces. That's you found 10, you found a thousand bucks just sitting there kind of thing. So I did, since you probably have far better insight with your research, what what do you think? I would say gold piece is about 500 shillings in the 13th century. Ooh, fractional currency. Exciting. (laughs) Uh, Excellent dodge. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, then you'd have to convert shillings to the real world. According to this, a shilling is about five pence. So it's it's very hard to take because that that would be only like what? One pound, I guess, which would be like a dollar. Just under. Yeah. Like it's hard to say because... uh, Things are different. I mean, you know, it's not like the kings own absolutely everything in existence anymore. So things having price and values, it's very hard to, once you hit the industrial era, everything with how much is this cost changes. Oh, speaking of which, I wanted to bring up something really interesting um, related to all of this, because, you know, we have effectively a one world economy in a Renaissance era, and you have sidestepped that and a Uh, accounted for that absolutely brilliantly in this chapter. Uh, Just like all of the other chapters in this book, this chapter is written from the perspective of somebody that would know about trade. He's a specific merchant. I don't want to butcher his name, Dustin, or her name. I I just call them Tiffy, uh, which um, was, uh, they're meant to be the father of a character from another Paizo product I wrote called The Crashing Wave, where there's a merchant named Sithy, or that's their nickname. And uh, I'm like, and I said in the description that they were the uh, uh, child of uh, a merchant from around Lake and Carthen region. And I'm like, oh, great, cool. Um, I need another merchant. I could just make this uh, the father. I love it. So (laughs) there is much said about the role of the Church of Abadar in this chapter, specifically related to how they do a lot of work uh, managing currency. And Abadar is a god of essentially justice and coinage, right? I I don't want to butcher it for anybody else, but locks, vaults, coinage, justice, he's neutral good, if I remember correctly. And uh, he's he's the banker god. And it seems like it's a big part of, of the rights of the church. And this, this character is an Abadarian, so they are an adherent to the faith. But they talk about the fact that the Church of Abadar, you know, holds the reins of the global economy and does a lot of nifty things that, you know, you think about living in a magical economy, teleportation magic or transmutation magic and ways that they mitigate that. Like, goods have to be labeled that they were transported with, teleporta- or with uh, teleportation magic of some sort. Right? right? And they have a method by which they can determine if something was teleported 
that points the direction of the caster. They hunt that dude down. It is badass. I love it. Right, right. I mean, we need the trade routes, and you don't want the economy to become, become dependent on, I don't know, 10th plus level casters. Uh, what happens to regions that don't have the casters who could teleport? What would happen if the government needed those casters to go to war? You know, you, you don't want everything reliant on casters. There are, of course, exceptions. If there's a, a plague or a famine and you need to teleport food or medicine to an area, oh yeah, by all means, teleport. Go, go for it. That's fine. But uh, otherwise, you don't want... Uh, potentially fickle magic that could be interfered with in all sorts of ways to completely devastate the economy and potentially wipe out entire regions that might not be able to afford such magic. I particularly actually really also like the uh, the part where you talk about the taxation on you know goods like gemstones that come from the elemental plane of Earth just to keep the economy from being flooded by resources from other planes. Yeah, yeah, definitely needs to just be needed. There's a lot of planes out there where something like a gold brick isn't as exciting as it is in our plane. Waiting for them to announce the plane of pizza. (laughs) Well, you know, they announced the plane of metal in uh, uh, Gen Con. Everything rocks at all times. (laughs) Wrong kind of metal, guys. I love it. Okay, if there's one part that you could call out in this chapter that you is your baby you love more than anything else? Is there one thing in here that you are just so very proud of being able to get down on paper that was published? I mean, I love, I love, love, love it all. Uh, but if I had the first thing I flipped to was definitely the uh, monster parts, relics, mechanical pon- components, and cards, uh, which are the four trade goods that don't have prices because they're too varied. Uh, in particular, I was kind of given that as a blank. They said like put put kind of treasury trade goods here so I could put whatever I wanted to. Uh, I know I wanted mechanical components thanks to guns and gears. That's become a big part of a lot of people's campaigns. And it makes sense to me that when you defeat a construct, you should be able to sell its components to people uh, as treasure. Uh, I was really excited to put a Gumio tail in monster parts as I like Kitsune a lot um, and Gumio and, and that whole lore. And, uh, you know, cutting off their tails is, oh, and selling them or using them for magic has always been a thing. Uh, but I really am happy that, uh, that our developer uh, allowed cards. As uh, I wrote a, a small book uh, star in, for Pathfinder Infinite called Starstone the Ascension, where you, I took the one paragraph from Grand Bazaar that mentions kids playing uh, a kind of trading card game with hero, de- with hero cards uh, through, uh, throughout Absalom. And I decided I'm going to make that game. I'm going to make it uh, streamlined for role-playing games so people can play it at their table. And uh, at that point, I went, I, I used it in a campaign and my players really liked it and started like looking out for cards and buying and selling them. And I'm like, this is a, this is a commodity. This is something uh, that you could use as an example for something uh, that is easy to hold on to, easy to travel with, not a lot of bulk. But they're tiny pictures. They're tiny portraits. They could be have a lot of uh, variation in everything from whether the card stock is paper or it could be made out of I don't know platinum or silver. You know, there's there's a lot of variation to the prices of things like cards. Uh, so I was really happy that they let cards be in there. Um, as it's, that, I feel like that's probably my baby. It's the fact that cards are now a commodity and a trade good. <laughs> 
Very cool. I caught that, and and I wondered if it was a specific Paizo related or Galarian related thing because I did not recognize it, and it makes sense that. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, it's, check it's out the cool. Marigold Toy Store in uh, Grand Bazaar, and there's a whole paragraph on a card game, uh, including a, a player who comes from ancient, o- ancient Osirian spirit possessing a uh, teenager who uh, is really, really good at the game for some reason, uh, and just kind of came oh out of nowhere. Oh my god. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <hilarious. Julia. laughs> It's it's great, and there's there's some teenager who wants to collect all the rare cards so nobody else could use them, and it's 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 absolutely wonderful. Uh, I didn't write that, but I really loved it, and it's what inspired my Starstone game, and also inspired this section of cards here in Trade Goods. I want to highlight very, very one cool. final thing, and it's a very weird one. And okay. uh, I noticed on page thirty three, whenever somebody gets a hold of this book, there's a picture of a gold piece. Mm. And I, I reached out to you, and there's a number. There's a serial number stabbed on the gold piece. There is uh, a little blurb uh, next to it that says, you know, just like banknotes now, some people like to collect specific serial numbers or sequential serial numbers. And there's, there's a blurb in here. So I'm thinking, you know, there's this 10-digit number. What does it mean? So I reached out to you. And what answer did you give me on this one? Uh, I, I don't know. I literally told the... I, I was... Uh... I'm proud to say that I was assigned to write all the art prompts in this section. And I simply said in the art prompt, a uh, random unique serial number. I am happy to report that this number is not random. Mm. I was able to track down what this number meant. It filled me this, with this really weird uh, desire and need to know if this number was random or not. So I reached out to Aaron Shanks with Paizo and he's like, I don't know. Reach out to uh, Lewis. Loza. And I was able to finally get him on Twitter, and he knew the answer. It's his wedding anniversary, with some numbers Aww. tacked on the end to round it out to ten. Oh, that's <laughs> So there's that's your Easter egg for this chapter, uh, because I felt like I was beautiful-minding for some reason, just absolutely focused on this stupid number, and I'm so glad that it meant something, because I, I probably would have gone slightly unhinged if it wasn't. that's awesome thank you for reaching out for that i'm i'm glad i got to know the truth too i i do have one question before we go please are we are we going to see at any point the 10 foot tall six-legged wagon demolisher oh my god i forgot (laughs) to mention that thing uh I suppose that would be something i could put in a bestiary on uh pathfinder infinite yeah, nope, I, I want to see that. <laughs> that was the one thing. There's just this throwaway line about a 10-foot-tall, what, six-legged uh, wagon, wagon demolisher. destroyer. It's, a, it's under oh, the leather as a trade good. It says, right. don't forget basic tanning supplies in case your caravan is ambushed by some rude 10-foot-tall, six-legged wagon demolisher. Right, right. I want to make sure all the art for the trade goods had something in it that screamed Galarian, if not outright magic. So for leather, I wanted some six-legged creature, because it would be distinctly not a cow, not a whatever. It would distinctly be, you know, oh, that's something from a fantasy world. And now I'm like, I just "Mm." noticed that that tanning frame has a six-legged pelt on it. (laughs) So very cool. All right, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, Thank you so much, Dustin, for taking the time to talk with us. This has been a couple weeks in the making, and I'm so glad that you could find time on this Saturday evening to talk with us about this. 
Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Well, one more time, where can we find out more about your products? Uh, you could find me all over Pathfinder Infinite, uh, but the easiest way to get in contact with me and learn about all my projects and products is on my Discord at infinite.net. That's night with a K, like the chess piece. Uh, that will take you to my Discord, and we have a whole community there full of Pathfinder Infinite creators who are willing and ready to answer questions and or help you learn how you can make your own Pathfinder Infinite products. Very cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you are interested in hearing more from us, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Roll for Intent. We also run a weekly Abomination Vaults playthrough. We just hit, as of this recording, episode 53. So come take a listen. Come check out our Discord, rollforintent.com slash Discord. And check out Christian's third-party content, Beast Foundry, where he's spent 30 years crafting this world and creatures and and such. You can find him on our Discord. You can also find him at beastfoundry.com and on Patreon, patreon.com slash beastfoundry. All right. Well, that should just about do it. Thanks, everyone. No problem. Thank you very much. Thanks. Till next time.